All right. Thank you, worship team. Uh, yeah, there's a lot in there that is kind of going to just roll right on through to Philippians here. Um, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, like I said earlier. We're starting a new series, uh, and just because of what we've sung, I, we're, Paul's writing to a, a faithful church that uh, would affirm things like, worthy is the name of the Lord, um, and pursued that. And so we're going to be taking a look at now post founding of the church. What does Paul have to say to them, to share with them? So I'd invite you to go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 1. The letter in itself, it's only four chapters long, so it seems short, but there's, as I've been preparing this, I've realized more and more every day, there's so much in here. Uh, Even in 11 verses, there is, uh, I mean, I could be up here for two or three days if I wanted to, uh, but there's potluck happening, so I, I won't do that to you. Um, and so Paul is writing to the Christians in the city of Philippi, and he has a special relationship with this church. He founded the church, but there's a a whole set of things that happened to make that possible. Uh, But nonetheless, they share a relationship, and so uh, between the two of them and the Philippians would probably be big proponents of the phrase, teamwork makes the dream work, or many hands make uh, light work. And we also know in our current reality, that's, that's a true phrase. These things are true. And so I was thinking of ways I could, I could make this a little more tangible for you, and I, I learned some trivia about Steve Jobs that I thought might do it. By the way, he used to work at Pixar, not Apple. Uh, then he founded Apple, but that's not what I chose to, to, to go with here. Instead, because I'm youthful, I chose Legos. Uh, so... <laughs> The, uh, the newest addition to the list of coolest things in existence uh, was unveiled uh, in 2013 in New York City, and it was not just Legos, but it was Star Wars Legos. It was the X-Wing fighter, the largest Lego kit that's ever had at that point ever been built. And so it spanned 44 feet, <laughs> and it came with, and this is probably the most important part, an R2-D2 replica, and a full range of sound effects, uh, which is secondary to R2-D2, but nonetheless still important. Uh, and so it's like the ultimate uber-sized version of, of a Star Wars fan's like dream, right? We have this super Lego uh, Starfighter set, and it came with, and I'm going I'm to read this number, it's big, 5,335,200 bricks. Uh, I can't count that high. That's a lot of bricks. Uh, so, and according to Lego, that's the largest model it's ever built. And so this is, uh, it was seen in the, the Mall of America, uh, and it was, uh, the, the, it, pre- it succeeded the one that was in the Mall of America, which was only a mere two million bricks. So more than double the size. And so it's, uh, it was built at the Lego Model Shop in the Czech Republic, and it took 32 master builders. Did you know there's a master builder for Legos? I didn't know that when I went to college. That would have been good information. And it took 17... 17- <laughs> 17,336 man-hours to construct an X-Wing. And so the plan was created using 3D software, so there was uh, not only the construction team that actually like, put the bricks together, but there's uh, structural engineers to make sure that when you put together 5,335,000 Legos, it doesn't just fall over. And, and there's also got to be people who do the designing, right? The, uh, all the CAD work and stuff like that. And so it has to be safe, it has to be built, and it has to be designed. And so... Uh, Once completed, this model, which weighed uh, almost 46,000 pounds, uh, was shipped to Legoland in California, and the the master builder 
would have told you that teamwork is the only way that that happens. When all of the pieces fit together and function in the way they're supposed to, do you get a 45 or 46,000 pound piece of Lego uh, that is a world record setter? And so uh, teamwork requires partnership, and Paul is going to talk about partnership with the Philippians as his uh, introductory passage here. And so this partnership that he shares with them, I, I've, I've already said he's got this deep relationship. There's not just a relationship, but there's a love, there's a friendship, a kinship with them. And so that relationship is all through the lens of their shared faith in Christ Jesus. And so the church in Philippi, if you're not familiar with it, is in Acts 16 is where uh, we find the church in Philippi uh, first. And so this is Paul's first excursion into Europe because Philippi, believe it or not, is in Greece. Uh, And so there is even a modern-day equivalent to the town of Philippi, but it's spelled with an F, and it's not actually in exactly the same spot. But it's pretty close. Uh, So the original city uh, kind of fell into ruin around 1350-ish A.D. And so it doesn't really exist, but there are ruins of it. And so Paul goes to Philippi in modern-day Greece, his first trip into Europe. Uh, And so before doing that, he actually meets Timothy just before. If you go to Acts chapter 16, like the first heading is Paul meets Timothy. So he's got Timothy, he's got Silas, and because it's Acts, he probably has Luke with him as well. And so together, these four gentlemen make the maiden voyage to Europe and come to Philippi. And their time in Philippi is pretty much in line with all of Paul's other visits, right? Paul goes to a new town. He gets the lay of the land. He kind of looks around, goes to a synagogue or whatever the place of worship is and makes his case for the gospel. No big surprises here, right? Uh, But this time, he does that and then lands himself in jail, which I would also argue is not out of character for Paul. He's also writing this current letter after he's founded the church. He's writing this current letter from prison in Rome. So again, not out of character, but he lands in jail because he's exercised a demon. Often not what you think you'd land in jail for, but nonetheless, that's where Paul finds himself. He exercises a demon from a girl who is called a fortune teller, and she's using the spirit uh, to uh, tell people's fortunes to gain money. And so Paul uh, has this demon leave the girl, and the people who own the girl, because that's the world they lived in, are angry at Paul because now they can't make any money off this girl, which is backwards in the first place. And, and, and so they press charges against Paul and put him in prison. It, it's, it's like pressing charges for destruction of property or, uh, um, yeah, destruction of property is probably closest, except for we're talking about a human being who was oppressed by a demon. And so the whole situation in Philippi is kind of backwards and upside down and not quite right. So Paul is in jail with Silas. And if you have ever read the book of uh, Philippians or read the the chapter 16 of Acts, you know what happens next. The the town is frustrated. So they they don't just put him in jail. They put him in the inner jail. It's the jail within the jail. They don't want him getting out. They don't want anything to do with him. Uh, and, And does that stop Paul and Silas? Anybody know? What do they do next? They sing. Sing. And God orchestrates this, this miraculous jailbreak. And in the course of events that are surround that jailbreak, Paul presents the gospel to the jailer who's responsible for Paul. And instead of uh, killing himself like the jailer was going to do, he instead repents, believes, and is baptized. Miracles have happened, uh, but the jailer isn't the first or even the only con. Uh, convert, that's a hard word today, the only convert in Philippi. Before he gets put in prison, Paul met with this woman named Lydia. 
And Lydia is the first recorded convert in Philippi, and her and her whole household were baptized. So at the end of this, this imprisonment, now there are two households. And so it's not what I would call a positive first experience, uh, although there was reception to the gospel, so that's the positive part. But being put in jail for exercising a demon is probably <laughs> was not on uh, the expectations list for Paul when he came to Philippi. And it, it doesn't really get better for him after Philippi. He goes to Thessalonica, gets run out of town, and the people that run him out of town chase him to the next town, where he again gets run out of town. Uh, it's not easy, but the gospel is on the move. And so, despite this rather off-putting first experience, Paul writes this letter, and we open it up, and we see he is thankful, joyful, confident in the Philippians. So how did we get from prison within a prison to, I am so thankful for you, I remember you in my prayers with joy? At the end of Acts chapter 16, we see, <laughs> we see uh, the, the magistrates, the officials in Philippi, actually come and apologize to Paul, and Paul's able to spend some more time there. And so uh, even though it's kind of a rough start, Paul is still able to spend time there, develop a church there. And so when we get to uh, verse 1 here, we were writing to an established church, a faithful church. So let's pick up with verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ who were at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers, of of, partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And so we go from Paul being in prison to now there are saints in Philippi. Not just saints, but deacons and overseers. There's structure. It's supposed to be this way. This is a good thing. There's an established body of Christ, and all of that stems from Paul's first visit where God worked mightily among them. In a lot of Paul's letters, he begins with thanksgiving, which is what he does here, right? I'm thankful for these things. I am glad for these things that you have done. And he does this uh, in Thessalonians. It's actually, that's probably the most positive out of all of them. But there are others where he doesn't. And that gives us a clue here because in the letters where he doesn't give a thanksgiving, like uh, Galatians or Corinthians, that means there's something majorly wrong in that body of Christ. And he is going to get right to the point. But here, it gives us a clue that there are good things happening. There's faithfulness within this body. And this thanksgiving is going to act like an overture. It's going to give us uh, like a prologue to the rest of the letter. He's going to present some of the other themes. It's going to tell us about the health of the church and also their strengths, their weaknesses. What does Paul want for them to do next? And so he begins with encouragement. He says, hey, Philippians, I remember you, and I have joy in my prayers because of you. And the English here reads something more closer to this. It says, always in every prayer, dot, 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 then the joy, with joy. But if we look at the Greek text and we look at the order of the words, we get this. With joy, 
the joy comes first, dot, dot, dot. With joy, I always pray. And so the joy is central to this statement. And the joy Paul finds in them is due to their faith. Paul is joyful that they know Jesus, that they follow Jesus, that they yearn after Jesus. And this is in line with how Paul lived his life. We can look at passages like 2 Corinthians 5 uh, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we can see how, how the reception of the gospel, the, the advance of the gospel, the name of Jesus is what Paul lives each and every day of his life for. Otherwise, why would he be in the prison within the prison? And so, of course, it's central uh, to his joy. He finds joy in the fruits of ministry. And when others respond, and they're faithful to the gospel. And so verse 5, we get that word partnership. They are partners in the gospel, and we get the sense that that's a continuing partnership. And actually, one of the, the things that has prompted this letter is Paul is, again, in prison. No surprise. He's in prison, and, and the Philippians have sent a care package through, through a man named Epaphroditus. And it has arrived to Paul. He's thankful for that care package, uh, which would be like financial support, material things that he might need, uh, and also a chance to converse, to, to share what's going on. And so in a lot of ways, uh, this functions as a missionary letter, Right? It's a church that's supporting Paul. Like, I'm pretty sure that this uh, partnership verse, I'm pretty sure I have quoted this to you after a missions trip, intentionally so, because there is that sense of a shared partnership, whether financially through prayer or otherwise, uh, that is so valuable. The Philippians are, are, are very closely tied to the work of Paul, and more importantly, to the work of the gospel through Paul. The gospel is what ties them together. It's what ties believers together and it also, we are tied together through the advancement of the gospel. So we're tied in belief, and we're tied in mission, which is, again, another theme that's present in this letter. So he is first uh, joyful. He prays with joy because of their faith, but he also prays, if we read verse 6, he prays with confidence. It's probably the most quoted verse in the Bible. I think the, the preaching team was maybe calling it a cross-stitch verse, if you, that was ever you. Uh, it, this is probably one of the ones that got put on. Uh, verse 6 is, again, one of the most quoted verses. It says this, And I am sure, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of uh, Jesus Christ. And so Paul's confidence in the faith, in the partnership, of the Philippians is rightly placed because that confidence is based on the work of God. And it's not based on Paul's witnessing. It's not based on the Philippians' perseverance or, or their giving, even though they have uh, given abundantly to him. But it is confidence based solely on the work of God because that is something he is sure that is happening. Paul's confident that what God began, God will complete. His words of joy and encouragement, they come from this deep conviction that God worked in the Philippians. Paul has seen manifestations of their relationship with God, so he is confident not only that, they, uh, that God is working, but that they have responded to the gospel. And there's something logical about this verse, right, about this confidence that Paul has. And so, like, if God has, so, uh, has you in his hands so securely, like we read in the, in the witness of Scripture here, th then, of course, God is going to sustain you. He's going to hold on to you. He's going to see your salvation through. So then the question is, well, what can keep you from following him? 
Insecurity is probably most often. Pride and other things often get in the way as well. But if God has called you, if perhaps insecurity is the, the problem here. If God has called you, you have a place within his family. We can read that out of Galatians or Ephesians, or most of Paul's writing. And nothing can take that away from you, not your mistakes, not your fears, not uh, anything else, because God has you uh, securely in his hand. God made it a point to reach you with the gospel so that you would respond to it. God made that much of an effort to pursue you to, uh, and make you his own child, uh, his own possession is what we read in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so God went to that extent for uh, for you to be made his, his child, his son, his daughter, then what on earth, literally on earth, could cause you to be let go of his grasp on you? John 10, 27 to 29 even encourages us in this, says, My sheep, this is Jesus speaking, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they will follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And so if God has us so securely, it gives us purpose We have confidence in this. If we're still here, then God is not done with us yet. There is work to be done. There is purpose uh, for our uh, work in the kingdom. And so when's the last time we asked God, we pursued God and said, what do you want to do through us? Hopefully it was like today. Um, But when's the last time we asked that of God? When's the last time that we got excited? And hopefully, again, the answer is today. When's the last time we got excited about the possibility of what God is going to do in your life today, tomorrow, the next day, in the next month? If we're still here, there is purpose. Oftentimes, people at some point in life come to the existential question, why am I here? What's the purpose of existence? And so we see in the confidence in God's work, purpose. So it seems that Paul's confidence is rightly placed. What God began, God will complete. And so we have joy, and we have advancement of the gospel uh, and co- or confidence. Those are all themes that we see presented so far, but we're also going to see encouragement. We're going to see sanctification be present here. And so he follows this thanksgiving with prayer. And he wants them to continue their growth in their faith, which I think is what any pastor would want for a church body. I think this makes sense. I am thankful for you. I want this for you. He wants to encourage them towards growth, towards love of one another, one, a love of God, and towards righteousness. And so if we pick up back in verse 9, we read his prayer. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. And so if we put this prayer together with the thanksgiving, and we should, that section begins with the word and, it's clearly joined to his first thought, we can see that a life that is dependent on God will be filled, Paul calls them, with the fruit of righteousness. A life dependent on God's grace will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. 
And so this begs the question, what, what, what is fruit of righteousness? And so Paul, he, he alludes to some aspects of what that is. He talks about love. He talks about discernment, knowledge, these things. Uh, but the fruit is evidence of the heart. It's evidence of the Spirit working in our lives. So Paul began with love, which I would again argue is in character for Paul. Most of his lists begin this way. But the word he uses for love is the word agape. And I would also caveat, I'm not a Greek scholar, so bear with me here. There's a little bit of Greek in here for us. And elsewhere, Paul uses the word phylos. And phylos is a mutual love, where there's a give and a take. Uh, it's, there's a mutuality to that relationship. Each person is satisfied out of the interaction. But agape love is different. It's one of the most common terms in, uh, in Scripture for the love of God. But it, it, it has in view self-sacrifice. Uh, it purposes to benefit somebody else rather than yourself. So instead of seeking this even exchange like phylos love, uh, I'll do this if you give me that. Instead, agape loves, it, it seeks the best interest. I see that they need this, so I'm going to do that. It seeks the interest of somebody else in a self-sacrificial way. If we were to look at the greatest commandment, we see out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is quoted in Luke 10. It's quoted in Matthew 22, which we read this morning. We see in the Septuagint translation, the word agape is credited to this version of love. We see this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then John tells his disciples, using that same word in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so we see this agape love present through Scripture, but it's also best exemplified through Jesus. If it's self-sacrificial love, then I, I mean, it's a, the logical conclusion. If it's self-sacrificial, that takes us to Jesus because he is the epitome of self-sacrificial love through the cross. But this kind of love requires humility, which is another central theme. It's no coincidence Paul's asking this of the Philippians uh, and uses this agape love. He does this to remind them of Jesus. He says, I want you to abound in love, but remember Jesus by the words I'm using. Remembering that this is a, it's a congregation who, who has trusted in Jesus. They know what he's done for their sin debt. They have come face to face with the love of Jesus. It has changed their life. It has changed their city. And that while we were enemies of God, he sent his son. He died in our place so that we could be forgiven, loved, and called sons and daughters of a loving father. And so this changed their life, and hopefully it's changed your life as well. And so we can apply that agape love in that sense as well. Jesus came with a self-sacrificial love for us, and it is based entirely on his righteousness. It's not based on our own, and there's that's important because otherwise we'd be talking about phylos, the mutuality in love. But we're talking about agape. We're talking about self-sacrificial love. Because if we were talking about mutual, mutuality in love, we'd be talking about transactional love. If we applied that to the person of Jesus, it would be a very scary picture. If, we, if Jesus had come only for transactional love, he could have come and said, I will save you, but only if you tell 100 people about me. Or only if you give 15%. Obviously, he didn't do this, right? This kind of transactional love would belittle the sacrifice of Jesus. There would be no purpose in him being on the cross uh, other than to say, I live perfectly and you didn't. Uh, 
But instead, Jesus comes. He says, I want to do this for you. You need this. And I want you to know me and be known by me because of the love I show for you. And so Jesus is the ultimate example of this self-sacrificial agape love. The example of Jesus in love and in humility is going to be, again, the unifying theme. Not just, it's not just central, but it unifies every single other theme. As we jump ahead in chapter 2 in a couple weeks, there's a, a, there's a song about Christ, and it centers on the example of Christ. So Paul's giving us a little hint right now. So the Philippians are to grow in love, in this self-sacrificial love, but how are they supposed to do this? Paul then gets to knowledge. He gets to discernment next, which probably seems kind of odd. Love requires knowledge and discernment. But here's some more Greek. In the, in the Greek word for knowledge, which in this case is, is epignosis, which comes from the root word gnosis. Uh, and, and this is generally conveying experiential knowledge. It's the product of experience by living. And so that's going to be important because they don't just aren't just told to know how to love one another. They're told to experience and learn by experience in loving one another. But then he also gives them discernment. And discernment is about the, the good moral judgment in their exercise of love. It's where trust is built out of. Upstanding character is essential to the action of love and the basis of trust. And ultimately, both knowledge and discernment, they have to work in tandem, in balance, for Christians to love uh, love in this manner in an effective way. Only exercising one is not going to be effective. In fact, it's more likely to cause hurt. So there is uh, experience in love, there's knowledge, and then there is discernment. Both are necessary. And so Paul says we're to press on continuing to the day of Christ, continuing to spiritual maturity. And he says this is going to be evidenced by fruit of righteousness. So the question here is, what causes us to bear this fruit? Every time I read about bearing fruit, I'm like, okay, well, tell me how to do that. And uh, he does. So (laughs) Philippians 1.6, it gives us the first part of that equation. He who began a good work in you, he, God. God began a good work, and God will bring it to completion. The continued work and faithfulness of God is the primary ingredient to how we bear fruit. Or perhaps it's, it's also how the Spirit bears fruit in us. However, God also calls us to action. We know God is working, but he also says, hey, here's an action for you to do. Jesus gives commands when he's teaching, right? Paul gives moral and ethical commands. And so there's clearly an effort to be given on our part as we seek to bear fruit. There's a partnership. Partnership. Paul's used that word already. Partnering with God and with one another is how we strive for this spiritual growth, how we strive to bear fruit. And so the question is, how do we partner with God? We want to bear fruit. We know that this fruit is born uh, through the work of God, but with us as well. So how do we do this? You may have, in fact, made this connection because we're talking about fruit. You may have gone over to Galatians 5 in your head and gone to the fruit of the Spirit. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all, all. Uh, if you ever worked in children's ministry, you have the hand drive memorized. Uh, and so, again, the fruit of righteousness here is going to be in line with his thoughts on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And so in Galatians 5, Paul teaches that we can either yield to the Holy Spirit, bearing f- the fruit of the Spirit, 
which yields Christ-likeness, or we can instead yield to the flesh, the works of the flesh, he calls them, uh, which is not a pleasant list, by the way. Uh, And that would be living for self-gratification, for pleasure, for uh, self-righteousness, things like that. And so Paul says that, that the flesh is unable to save you. It's powerless in your life. It just is temporary gratification. And he says, flee from those things. Instead, yield to the Spirit. And so it's time to take stock and see where we're at. As many of you know, I'm finishing up a degree here at, at Moody, and one of the, the speakers they've had in is Dr. Loritz. Uh, and there's a, a, a conversation he has about the fruits of the Spirit, but more importantly about yielding to the Spirit. I'd like to share a couple things out of that with you. And so he makes some observations about the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And so if the fruit is not present then it may be evidence that we haven't given our life to Christ. So self-examination is valuable. We also have to ask the question, who produces that fruit? And so that question presupposes that we are submitting to the Spirit of God. We know God produces the fruit, but are we submitting to the Spirit? Because as Paul illustrates, the works of the flesh, our, our work towards self-righteousness, we can't transform ourselves, we can't make ourselves into the, the image of righteousness that we uh, want to be or think we need to be. We can't transform ourselves. If you're going to look at this, as, like, I'm a homeowner now, it's just very exciting, but uh, you can rearrange your furniture, you can uh, put some spackle up to cover that crack in the wall that's hiding a much bigger issue, because, but you're not going to fix the foundation all by yourself. And so the more we yield to God, the more we begin to look like Jesus, this image of Christ-likeness, and we begin to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. If we want to experience this power of God in our lives, we want to uh, become more like Christ, we have to yield to the Holy Spirit. And so how does this happen? We first have to repent. If you're still pursuing sin, you're not yielding to the Spirit. I think there's a, that's a logical uh, uh, thing to draw out of that. But we have to think of what is hindering me from, from being under the control, from yielding to the Holy Spirit of God. And when we ask that question, we then have to repent of those things. We have to get them out of the way. God's not going to control us when we're holding on to sin. And so after we've done this, we get to depend on God. Paul gives confidence in the fact that we can depend on God. And after confession, we yield. Success success in the Christian life means dependence on God. We were born to live for someone else. And so when we are seeking to depend on God, we say, God, live in and through me. Work in and through me. And the last step in that is to believe, to believe that God actually wants that for you. He wants to to be that present in your life. He wants to transform you more and more into the image of Jesus. So as we repent, we make room, we depend, we yield, and we believe that God will do these things. This is one of the ways that we get to yield, and this is a daily process because I don't know about you, we still sin. This is a reality we live with. We are being sanctified, made more and more like Christ each and every day, but we're not going to reach perfection until we meet God face to face. And so in those day-to-day moments when we are experiencing temptation, when we have sinned, we get to yield and instead to the Holy Spirit and say, God, I'm sorry for that, but instead can you, can you guide me here? 
Will you lead me through this? Will you guide my thoughts? And so while the Philippians are supposed to grow in love because of the example of Christ, uh, we are to continue in spiritual growth as we seek to bear fruit. One day, we will all stand face to face with Jesus. And so are we preparing for that day? The fruit of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit, they prepare us for the eternity to come. They prepare and develop us into the image of Christ. They also serve a, a purpose in the present age. The fruit of the Spirit isn't just a future need, but it's, it's a need in the here and now. The fruit of, this, uh, of righteousness encourages the body of believers, and it glorifies God. Paul's life is a, is a really good example of this. Paul seeks to glorify God in everything he does, but he also, every time he can, encourages the body of Christ towards bearing the fruit of righteousness. And so there's four things that I think Paul would ask us to consider. The first one is this. It's how should we be encouraging one another? And it's important because encouragement doesn't mean empty platitudes, just words for the sake of words. Paul uses encouragement to spurn on faith. This means that we need to be present in the lives of one another, but also, not just in the day-to-day life, but in our spiritual walks. You can't encourage somebody spiritually if you don't know anything about where they're at spiritually. Well, you can, but it's rather difficult. So instead, we can encourage each other by being present. Second question. How should we be partnering for the gospel? If you've been here for any extended portion of time, and if you come to our budget meeting next week, you're going to see we seek as a church to support a number of missionaries and missions organizations. Uh, But also in that is the stewarding of our materials. Are mission organizations the only way the gospel makes its way into the world? God works through so much more. He does work immensely through those organizations, right? But he also works in the day-to-day lives of you and me as we interact with our neighbors, we interact with kids, with grandkids, with the people that are in your day-to-day life, your coworkers. And so how can we be on mission every day in every interaction? Certainly Paul's life would example that for us. And so the third question is this, where do we find our joy Paul writes this letter with a great rejoicing. He's like, I've been there with you guys, and you guys are still doing it, and I'm so, so excited, and I'm joyful for the faith that you have. And he's joyful because of what it will do for the gospel. Nowhere else in, in, in Paul's writing or in his recorded life do we see him vary from this focus, right? His rejoicing is always rooted in the gospel. Everything he does, uh, even, uh, we can even see this in the great commandment, everything that Paul does is for uh, the gospel, for the kingdom, for uh, the encouragement of the church. So where are we finding our ultimate joy? Is it in Jesus, our living hope? who is present with us, who is encouraging us, who has given us the Spirit to uh, help us be ready for the day that is to come, to help us love one another well, to give us knowledge, discernment? Or are we instead hoping in something that would fall in the category of the works of the flesh? Only the hope of Jesus is going to be able to carry us through our darkest days. Remember, Paul's writing from prison. A lot of Paul's days were dark, and yet, He begins with rejoicing. 
So the last question here is how can we be yielding to the Spirit? In all of these things, these different questions we've asked, we should be yielding to the Holy Spirit. We should be asking Him to guide our interactions with one another, helping us love one another well, to give us discernment so that we can love in, in a way that builds up trust and to build up godly character within us and within the church body as a, a unit. A body of believers that yields to the Holy Spirit is going to be an effective body of believers. So I have a question. How many of you drove here in a car today? I did. Uh, And so, when we're yielding to the Spirit of God in our life, when we're uh, wanting Jesus present in our lives, think about it this way. We're driving our car. And we see Jesus, we're like, hey, yeah, that guy's helpful. Get in the car. But we usually start by putting him in the trunk. We're like, I, just for a rainy day. Bear with me. Right? We're like, I'll just, I'll, I'll take you out when I need you, but just, you can hop in the trunk. It's okay. And instead, we're like, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe I need Jesus more than that. Not just like once a month, once a year. Maybe I need him more than that in my life. Okay, Jesus, can you come actually sit in the back seat and give me a little more advice? Can you help me grow a little more? And then eventually he works his way up to the passenger seat where he's able to give some directions and co-pilot. But really, what the desire should be is to get out of the car and say, Jesus, will you drive? Please. (laughs) Are we seeking Jesus as we get through the day-to-day of the Christian life? As we exercise encouragement, joy, partnership, unity, all of these things that Paul's brought up, we remember that these are all gifts of God and, and that we receive them because of his work in our lives. They're for God, for his glory, and for his kingdom. And so that's why Paul keeps referencing the day of Christ. He wants us to keep that in view. And so as we, as we look forward to this, this day we're united with Christ eternally, uh, we get to remember and celebrate and, and, and practice unity and joy, encouragement together as we take communion. If you didn't get a cup yet, you can go grab one. It's okay. And so 